If you're looking to save some money on your wireless plan, take a look at Visible Wireless. They're a transparent wireless carrier with nothing to hide. If you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible where you can get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just 25 bucks a month, taxes and fees included. One-line wireless, just 25 bucks a month with taxes and fees included. That's unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Switch now at Visible.com. You shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. Like Visible, the wireless company making wireless visible. Monthly rate on the Visible plan. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. This is Duke Nukem. And when I'm not out slaying aliens and saving Earth's babes, I'm listening to Podcast Unlocked. Hail to the podcast, baby! Podcast Unlocked. Welcome to Podcast Unlocked, episode 238 for March... It doesn't matter. I'm on vacation. And it doesn't matter for you. Yeah. We'll talk about why in a second. 20 seconds. Thank you, telephone. <laughs> uh, 23rd, 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 23rd. My name is Mitch. Uh, his name's Mitch Dyer. <laughs> Great start. I'm really out of it's whack fine. today. It's fine. You and I are like, it's the end of the day. You're about to go on vacation. It's going to be great. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I'm Ryan. That's Mitch. Hello. You know us as Podcast Unlocks uh, co-host. Two of the four or eight of them, however many we have. <laughs> We're going to have to add another one now. Uh, so... Mitch Dyer, you, my friend. First of all, if you're wondering what the hell is going on. Where is everybody? Last week was GDC, as you know, and it was crazy busy. We had all kinds of cool people in IGN. We met, we met, went down GDC. Played lots of cool games. Yeah, all kinds of stuff. So uh, in the interests of sharing some of those experiences with you, uh, this show is going to be about five or ten minutes of intro with Mitch and I here, as we're doing right now. And then, next up is an interview with Donald Mustard. He came in, and if you don't know Donald Mustard, he is the co-founder of Chair Entertainment, the incredible folks behind the even more incredible Shadow Complex. And before that, Mitch, Undertow for Live Arcade. I love that game. uh, Near and dear to my heart, a flawed, but in my opinion, very impressive game for a number of reasons. Advent Advent Rising. Rising. Yes. A beauty. Yes. An OG Xbox beauty. So, Chair, uh, you know, of course I'm going to ask about <coughs> Shadow Complex 2. I would not be doing my job, or nor would I be a fan if I didn't <laughs> ask that question. So, I really hope you enjoy the interview with Donald Mustard. And then immediately following that, Jamie Greesmer was in here. And Jamie is one of the original designers on the original Halo. He was there up through 3. Uh, he is fantastic. He is Jamie is sort of the guy credited with inventing the... Halo's famous 30 seconds of fun loop, so bunch of cool Halo stories. We do get into a little bit of their new project, which is Golem for PlayStation VR. I realize that's not an Xbox thing, so should you desire when it gets to the part about 
PlayStation VR and Golem, you can stop listening to the show because that'll basically that's the last thing in the show this week. Still recommend you do because PlayStation yeah. VR super important to the future of video games. Absolutely. Uh, in the meantime, Mitch Dyer, yes, you put out a tweet recently. Yes, caused a bit of a stir. Yeah, in my certainly for me. Yeah, I said I wasn't that office. excited about Batman v Superman. That's not the tweet I'm referring oh, to. My bad. Uh, no, it's that you have. Well, you know what? You take it away. I'm not going to steal. Yeah, your time uh, Friday, April first is my last day at IGN, and I that's hate you a, so much. I know, right it's now. a really, really hard thing to say out loud because I've been doing this for almost five years. Like IGN has been my home, and it's like where I grew up and became like a real adult person and honed my skills and became an on-camera person and learned to do more things than I was doing when I was freelancing, when I was just a, a an excited little nobody who's just like, <laughs> I like to review games. That's cool, right? Um, so yeah, I came to IGN in 2011 as a contractor, moved to the States in 2012, and I've just been doing everything here since. Uh, and I think I've been on, on Unlocked since I got here, since well, week that, one. That was going to be the thing I was going to bring up was uh, to not only thank you for being on this podcast, because... So the quick story, not to make this about me, but like Whatever, I, when man. I came in, I started at the very tail end of May, right before E3, right before E3. in 2012. First day here, I said, the, there was this podcast unlock thing that had changed from three red yeah. lights, but it was sort of, I, for, with no disrespect to anybody, kind of leaderless. Like it was just sort of this yeah. thing that you guys occasionally did. It was very scattered. Like when I was doing Unlocked, it, we went in and it was just like, we're going to talk about Spelunky or whatever people yeah. were playing that week, Battlefield Three, because Peter did the review and just kind of figuring out like games are cool. Let's talk about those Xbox stuff. All right, have a good one. Yeah. So then I came in and I'm just I've I've I love radio and podcasts so much. Mm-hmm. I just want to like okay, I, I have an I have an idea for this. Let's do it. And you've been there with me since since the beginning. You yes, are sir. actually you are technically the longest tenured member, longer than me. Yeah. Up until next week or up until when I get back from my vacation. Because you were on it before I got here. Uh-huh. So you are the, the longest tenured member of Podcast Unlocked, and it has been a pleasure doing shows with you every single week. Likewise, man. I this love you. You a are a staple of my week. A, fan. a lot of people probably don't know, you and I knew each other before we both came to IGN. Yep. I worked at Official Xbox Magazine, and you uh, came onto my radar. You ended up worming your way in as a freelancer. Yeah. You were doing freelance preview work for me. You yep. do other stuff for OXM. We got to know each other that way. Played some and Resident Evil. Yes, Resident Evil 5, which gets a lot of hate. This game's fun. But because I played it with you, I played the whole thing. You and I yeah. went, rolled it in, pro- I don't know, three nights, whatever yeah. it was. I had an awesome, I love that game. Me too. Because my entire experience with it was co-op start to finish with you. I never played it in single player. No, me either. Um, but yeah, I, I I know what you're up to, and I know you're going to share that with the world in the in the coming weeks very and months. Very soon. And I'm super stoked for you. I'm very Thank selfishly you. sad. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sad too. Like, it's, I don't know, it's, it's a new and exciting thing, yeah. and I'm very excited about it, but it's also very bittersweet to be leaving behind California and IGN yeah. and everything that, everything that comes with it, like the people here, right? Like, I don't know, it's the, it, this is a special place, and it is really hard to let go of it. Well, uh, you're going to get your own chance. The show is yours next week. Oh, yes. Ryan's on, on vacation. vacation. Uh, so you guys My know last that episode means. will be, uh, if, Mitch, you, if you like the original podcast, <laughs> Unlocked, you're in for a real Mitch treat. Mitch is going to burn really it to the ground doing. next week. Yeah. It's going to be like just torching every bridge. Wait, how many developers are gonna, you going to give the finger to or <laughs> PR people or don't do any of that? I'm gonna, it's, it's actually uh, it's going to be a lot like this except without Ryan, and it's just going to be a 75-minute a filibuster. <laughs> I believe you're now qualified to work in American government. You've been here long enough to yeah. – you know how to filibuster. No, That's I'm how kidding. it works. Uh, so, 
you're awesome. I will Thank miss you. you, but I wish you the best. I know it's you are going to grow and evolve and uh, further yourself professionally you. and personally, and you're going to do great. Thank you. And you're, of course, welcome back here anytime. I'm going to listen to this show as a listener now. You probably, sh- in hindsight now, should not have let Destin back into the game on the, the Dookie because you could have taken that Dookie trophy I would have been the winner. with you to your new work desk and your new I place. Know. Now you have nothing. No, it's fine. To show I, for it. Listen, I'm a very charitable guy. I like to make people feel good about themselves when they're feeling down. So I do what I can. You hear that, Destin? He doesn't. You are a charity case in Mitch Dyer's eyes. Do you want to point out, if we look at the statistics for this year, I'm on track to annihilate him. Oh, Annihilate snap. him. So again, but you won't. This is a charity. I gave my notice <laughs> specifically so that Destin would feel good about 2016, so he'd have something to, to live for and, and work toward. All right. So you've got, <laughs> you got, you guys all have one more week with Mitch next week without me. Uh, do with the show as you will. I know you'll take good care of it while I'm gone. It's be a good one. And stay tuned. So, again, we all love you, Mitch. Thank you. Of course. You kick ass. Thank you. Uh, you too. And you. And you. You. And all of you. You. But seriously, stay tuned. If you're done, you're done listening to us. Uh, we'll get back to the guys will talk. Get back to talking pure Xbox next week. Lots of news to catch up on. on Mitch's, Mitch's goodbye show. I'll be back the week after. And for right now... A little something special, I think. Donald Mustard, followed immediately by Jamie Griesmer. Enjoy, and we'll see you guys next week. A very special guest on Podcast Unlocked this week. You know him as the man behind one of my favorite super underrated original Xbox games, I think, Advent Rising. And much, much more famously, Shadow Complex, and the one that puts the Ferrari in the driveway, <laughs> of course, your iOS action that's uh, turned into three games. So, Donald Mustard, hi. Hey. How's it going? It's been a long time since I've seen you. It has been a while. Yeah. yeah. They don't let you out much, do they? Well, I know. We, <laughs> we love making games, so we, we spend our time doing that. Uh, well, let's start. I want to start with... Uh, the fact that you've been a game developer for a very long time. You're, you're a young man, but you've been at this for, for quite some time. Sure. And you've always worked with your brother, Jeremy. Yes. Uh, when did you guys know that you wanted to be game developers? You wanted to make games? That is a great question. So, um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, my name's Donald, and Jeremy is my uh, younger brother by just over uh, two years. So we're about two years apart, and growing up, you know, we were – we were always just really great friends. And, you know, when we were young, you know, I was probably 12 and he was around 10. We're like, man, someday. And I'm sure lots of siblings say this. We're like, someday we're going to work together and we're going to do cool stuff. Yeah. and We're going to take over the world and all that. And uh, we were dumb enough to believe it. You know, we're like, oh, we're going <laughs> to do this. And and we we started scheming even then. And, and then it wasn't even video games. It was like, oh, either we're going to go make movies or we're going to do comic books yeah. or, or video games or whatever. And, uh, but we did, we started kind of actually going down that path. My brother began becoming, you know, he began voraciously learning how to become a programmer. And I started really focusing on art and we're like, if we can do that. You know, now was can... that, was that by, and those are extremely complimentary things, particularly in a game development scenario. Did that happen organically or did you guys like have a meeting about it and be like, all right, we kind of had a meeting about it. No, because because Jeremy 
even though he's he is a brilliant programmer, is a very good artist. And uh, and probably if he chose to, could have gone that way. Yeah. I don't know if I could have been a brilliant programmer, but I'm not. I mean, I I'm I'm. You, you know, know your I, way I around the way Unreal around Engine, right? Bit, right. You know. <laughs> um, but yeah, we kind of strategically kind of went that route, and and that was kind of the plan. Um, when we got to college, um, you know, we were definitely leaning towards film at that point. We're like, yeah, I think we're going to go into the movie industry and kind of do this. And then Final Fantasy VII came out. And, you know, we were these just poor, poor college kids, right? We didn't have any money. Yeah. Um, but this game, we're like, oh, we have to check it out. And so we, you know, we scraped a few dollars together. We went to Blockbuster. We rented a PlayStation. We rented Final Fantasy VII. And and we got home, we started playing it, and we realized, oh my gosh, we didn't have any, no memory uh, no, card. No memory card. <laughs> no memory card, and we couldn't afford a memory card. Yeah, right. No, they were expensive. That's and where so, they made all the money. Right, and so we're like, okay, this this is changing everything, and so we're just gonna not go to classes. We're not gonna sleep. We have to <laughs> we have to beat this game in seventy two hours before we have to return. Yeah, it. and we can't save. There can't be any power fluctuations, right? <laughs> and so we just we played through Final Fantasy VII start to finish. We didn't sleep. You know, we'd like guard these. Like, just our roommates would come in and be like, "Shut the doors, softer." You know, don't <laughs> don't shake anything. You know, bump the disc. And uh, by the end of it, we're like, we have to make games. Did like, you finish it? Did oh, you yeah. do it? Oh, of course, of course. We no did. memory card. No memory in, card. In a rental period. In a rental you period. You guys beat Final Fantasy VII. Yes, exactly. Absolutely, we did. Yeah. And so after that, you that was that was like the tipping point that really inspired you guys. Yeah, I mean, because we'd always been gamers, but to me, there was something about. Uh, the storytelling on display in Final Fantasy VII that said to us, you know, games really are going to be the most relevant entertainment medium moving forward. Yeah. You know, we really felt that way. And we're like, why? You know, and, and I love, deeply love films, right? But we're like, why would we want to go tell stories in film that could be awesome and fulfilling? But, you know, it's kind of, we've kind of figured out how to tell a two-hour story. Right. Whereas games, like we're still trying to, just, even now, we're still just figuring out what this medium can even be. Yeah. And that just seems so exciting to be to say, let's dedicate our life's work to kind of pioneering this new form of entertainment, or being there in this kind of pioneering phase. And so, so my yeah. my next question was, what were some of your favorite games as kids? You've just answered a big one, but did, did you guys play other? What were some of your other favorites? The two of you as kids. So you know, we 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 definitely grew up in the Nintendo era, yeah. right? Well, we were we were a Nintendo house, not a not a not a Sega house, right? Well, like, so are you, are you talking? But that's so you guys were sixteen bit era because I feel like you're probably around my age or so. I mean, I oh, was yeah. an NES. Were oh yeah, NES we were definitely guys? NES. Oh okay, yeah, yeah. So. no, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, so. Sega was sort of you know master. Nobody had a master system yeah, at yeah, that yeah. point. Yeah, but no, by then, but you know, yeah, by then our loyalties were you know firmly cemented, right? So yeah. no, I mean like. Obviously, we were very, you know, like our favorite games were Zelda, Metroid, you know, things like that. You know, it definitely Castlevania, had an, yeah, I Castlevania, presume. Right. Things have had an influence on our But yeah, I know. I think definitely like my favorite game of all time is probably still Super Metroid. Um, I think all the early Zeldas are amazing. I, I look at stuff like, I mean, obviously, we're, we all the same games everyone loved, like, but we loved the Mega Man series. I love Battletoads. You know, like we loved like the Final Fantasy stuff. Um, and then, you know, moving forward, like Half-Life was like, I mean, was, we're, we're huge gamers, so we play a lot of what, everything. What was your first attempt to make a game? Did, uh, did you guys do anything like on, did you have like an Amiga or a Commodore 64 around? Yeah, well, so, no, it's interesting. Or so PC like, for we, that matter. We, we, we didn't, like, we didn't actually have 
a computer in our home. And this is the crazy thing. Like, how did Jeremy become this brilliant programmer with no computer? Um, he, like, so when he was probably about 12 years old, he started asking for programming books for Christmas, even though we had no computer. And so he wow. was getting, like, these manuals for C and C++, you know, C++ <laughs> and, like, reading them. And at one point, I think my dad's like, oh, my goodness, like, we need to do something. And so he would, at night, he'd bring home, uh, like, an ancient, like, like a laptop, but which was really like these big, like, you know, <laughs> slightly portable computers, right? He'd bring home a laptop that Jeremy could start working on, yeah. right? And it kind of went from there. So, but yeah, so we would design a lot of games on paper. We wouldn't actually make them. But, sure. Um, but even still, like, I could show you the drawing I did when I was 12 years old that became Undertow. Wow. Right? I mean, like, we designed that game when we were... 12. I was, I'm going to get to that, but I want to start a little further back. So let's your first big game, Advent Rising, for the original Xbox. Now, to me, as I said at the top, I, I really feel like that game's criminally underrated. I think it was a great story. The, the power progression, you really f- could sense, you, you, you could tangibly feel how much more powerful you got as the game went along. It had a, a great story to it. Uh, Orson Scott Card wrote the script to this game. So and it, it, to be fair, it was rough around the edges technically very, on very the original rough. Xbox, <laughs> yeah. uh, but it was really good. I mean, are are you bummed that it didn't do better? Well, you know, I mean, we loved making Advent, right? And that was that was our our first you know game, and and I, I I agree with you. I mean, I think there was a lot of innovative ideas in the game, but I think that game also demonstrates um, you know some of our design. Uh, naivety, right? Like yeah. some of our immaturity as really understanding what it takes to make a game, right? That was a that was definitely a game that was more ambitious than our ability to like again, you could see I'm it's amazing that you could see that because I think there's so many innovative ideas that we were able to express in Advent. What we didn't know was what it really takes to to finalize and ship and squash all the bugs, you know, all the things that go into actually yeah. just like finishing a game. And so I think there is a lot of roughness around the edges because we didn't understand what we were getting into. So um, I'm so glad we made Advent. It does have a lot of fans that, that love it, but um, that was definitely me not understanding how how complex a game really, really is. is right? So, I mean, you're, you're being uh, humble about it, which is great, but I mean... I think it's just the truth. Well, right? w- but was was Ma- was Majesco to blame for this game not doing super well? Not was at it? all. No, I mean, I mean, well, I mean, again, ultimately, like, like at the end of the day, like Majesco are the people who gave me a shot, right? Right? Like, like how crazy is that? Like the, this this young group of people that had never made a game before, yeah. Um, by in in no respect should have been given even one dollar to make a game like they believed in what we were doing and they gave us a shot and you know I have nothing but the deepest respect for for Jesse and Joey and all those guys at Majesco like they're incredible and um, they believed in us when no one else could have right and no I think at the end of the day you know it it mostly comes down to you know, me, right? I scoped that game too big and I had no idea, right? I had no yeah. idea what we were doing, right? And, you know, if we would have scoped it maybe differently or, you know, whatever. It is it is what it is. Like, you you live and learn. Um, but it still did, you know, well enough that um, every, every, you know, everything's fine. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that, that there's definitely ideas in Advent that um, I hope to return to someday. Just, again, some of the core design ideas and 
the progression. Well, you, it was of originally and, planned, conceived as a trilogy. Yeah, is that correct. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yep. Again, like that unbridled ambition, right? Yeah. Like we were just like, no, this is what it should be, and it was definitely like our statement on what's the ultimate game that could ever be ever be made. And I'm still just shocked at how much crazy stuff we were able to get in there, right? Like actually making you feel like a superhero yes. as you play the game, yes. right? And having a game that begins as more of a of a shooter and ends as you're just like this super powered being that's like flipping through the air and doing multiple headshots while doing backflips and you can control it all while doing superpowers. Like there was some crazy awesome stuff in there. Um, yeah, and I think if we could have just, again, had the maturity to finish it correctly, it could have been one of the biggest games ever. Would it have just was you know. it just a time thing? Did you need six more months or a year, or, or 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 are you saying are you talking about scoping it? Did you need to have? Would you have needed to sort of cut it down a little bit and really sort of focus it a little more? I mean, if I was talking, if I was talking to two thousand and three version of me, <laughs> yeah, I would, I would, I would be, you know, I would, I would make some scoping changes um, a little bit, right? Like. There could have, there was probably some areas and a couple features we could be like you know instead of doing eight powers do six right because then you can polish them right yeah. instead of doing yeah. this do that like a little I think a little bit of scoping a little better planning on time and yeah I mean and again like an understanding technology and optimization a little bit better um, which we do now right like yeah it it'd be much easier for us to make Advent today and I mean yeah. the reason I bring up the Majesco thing is because what a lot of people might not remember. Is there, as a as a marketing tool for the game, there was a million dollar contest associated with the game where players were supposed to find these. Yeah, I've erased clues that from my memory. <laughs> that were literally hidden in the game. They were they were coded into the game. We'd never really seen a, a marketing stunt like that before. The whole thing ended up getting canceled. So first of all, whose whose idea was that? Because it, it it was an interesting idea, yep. and and what the hell happened with that whole thing? So it was definitely a cool idea. I think it was a cool idea. Um, I don't remember who pitched it, um, but uh, well, I don't remember who pitched it. But it's a great idea, and we were like, yes, let's totally do this. Yeah. Let's get it working. If you found, I think it was supposed to be what seven clues. I don't remember. And if was... you found them all, you were in some sort of tr- chance yep. for a million. No, dollars, we actually right? had these items hidden in the game. Yeah. You know, that you would find and it would ping Microsoft servers like when you did it and, and all that. Um, and unfortunately, I mean, I guess we're far enough away to just say what happened. Like, no, like Microsoft, limitations. Microsoft it. servers didn't work. It was it was Microsoft's fault. Interesting. Like, it just didn't work. Like, they we'd had it all tested. They were like, yep, it totally works. Um, there, there was some stuff. Again, er, again, this is still the early days of even Xbox Live, right? This oh, is, yeah. This is original Xbox. Yep. Right? And... While you know it could do kind of like player to player multiplayer matchmaking a little bit, it, it wasn't it. They hadn't tested their systems in order to do some of this stuff, and so it didn't work, which sucks because we'd already talked about it. And so yeah, right. that was that was uh, that was not helpful. Yeah, because I mean that was the days when uh, there was a term that nobody will remember now called live aware, <laughs> which not yep. even every game was live aware, meaning yep. you couldn't even see your, that your friends were online yep. in certain games. Like it was only as you as you as you said for a for a you know peer to peer a match multiplayer matchmaking thing. Right. So the the wild west days of yes. Xbox. Now clearly the relationship didn't affect you too badly because you went on to do uh, Shadow Complex. Oh yeah, again it wasn't we'll it was all to. with the best intention. It wasn't yeah. like Microsoft intended to do that. It was right. just again just again it was wild west stuff, right? Uh, but I'm curious what how'd you hook up with Orson Scott Card? 
How does this? How do these kids from from that have come from nowhere effectively? No, no offense. No, not, <laughs> that, no you know, they, you're, 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 you have you don't have much of a track record at that point, uh, and you're in, you're hooked up with with Orson Scott Card. Well, so I have always had. Well, it's not it's not just me. Our entire team at Chair, we we've always had <laughs> the audacity of hope. Right? Yes, like we've always we've always just had this kind of crazy idea that people are people and it, you can just talk to anyone and the worst thing that can happen when you talk to someone is they could just say no or they can disagree with you and and so we've we've always just i mean even our earliest relationship with epic right we were just like these kids out of college no one should have been talking to us <laughs> and you know jeremy's doing research on engines and he's like oh this unreal stuff looks really cool we're like yeah unreal tournament's awesome and he like we like call up tim sweeney just called him up, you know, and he talked to us because it's Tim, you know, and he's amazing. And he's like, you used, yeah, yeah. You used Unreal for Advent, right? We did. Yeah. Yes. You, know, so that's you were, you were, a, you were yeah. in business with him right. to an no, extent. Well, th- it started with that because we call him up and he's like, oh, yeah, you know, our stuff's really cool. And you know what? Why don't you guys should just come out to North Carolina. And you should just like hang out with us. And it started with that. Like we flew out to Epic and and we didn't even know what to expect. But by the end of like even that day, I'm sitting at Cliff's house. When me and Jeremy are sitting on Cliff's back porch having a barbecue with Cliff and Mark and Tim Sweeney and Mark Rain, and we're just, like, hanging out. And these guys are so nice and so encouraging, you know. And, like, and that would have never happened if we weren't just, like, let's give them a call. Yeah. Right? And that's kind of the same thing we did with Orson Scott Card. That's the same thing we did with Peter David, you know, who ended up writing all the Shadow Complex stuff for us. It's how we started working with Brandon Sanderson on Infinity Blade. It's how we started working with J.J. Abrams, right? A lot of yeah. this stuff is just is – just, us being crazy enough to be like, let's just ask, yeah, you know, and 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 doing that. And there's crazy stories I could tell you for every one of those of those partners. Um, but really, it starts with that and with our desire to collaborate with people. I really believe. I mean, this has kind of been the core tenet of Chair. Is our core philosophy is try to find a, really, a key leg. Yes, of chair, a key if you leg will. of Chair. Yes, <laughs> has been if we can find really really talented people then we can just trust them and we can yeah. get out of their way and let them do what they're good at. And we've tried really hard to build a team of people that are very passionate about making games and we try and just let them make them and and try and recognize our weaknesses. Like we're like, we're not the best writers in the world. We're not this or whatever. And there's people out there that are so good at it. Let's try and collaborate with them. And it, it's interesting for me personally because there are people out there like J.J. Abrams and Brandon Sanderson that I just have such crazy respect for like I read Brandon Sanderson's books and I'm just like this is some of the this is like the best stuff I've ever in my life and as a fan of that my inclination isn't oh I can't just wait to read more I'm like I have to meet them I have to find a way to work with them because I want to understand what's in their head what are the things that lead them to these awesome things they invent and then inevitably that leads to me being like we got to work together let's do something and then and then we are and and I well, smile you, all the time. Yeah, so you clearly ha- have ever. a charm about you. You're 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 wooing these people, I don't winning know, them I, over. I don't know about that. I think it's just <laughs> I I just you know I just ask. It is. It's a life lesson, though, right? You'd be surprised what you can get if you just ask nicely, yeah. right? Yep. That's all it is. Well, it's what Steve Steve Jobs what I would say, right? He would say, you know, it it's it's a it's a shocking moment when you realize that. Everything that humans have done, all the stuff that we've invented, it was all done by people that are probably just about as smart as you are. 
<laughs> right? And yet we've accomplished the world. Right. Right? And so just ask. Most people are actually pretty cool. Just ask. There you go, yeah. kids. Uh, let's move forward. Chair. You formed Chair because Advent, you guys were Glyphex. Yep. Um, chair, much <laughs> You really better are name. just going through everything, right? <laughs> much better chair, much better name. Uh, you come up with Undertow, which you mentioned earlier. You, you drew it out with your brother as a kid on paper. It's a, it was a fantastic early Xbox Live arcade game, arcade action shooter. Uh, I'm curious, did you make this smaller scale game as a direct response to having just done this huge, big thing with Advent Rising? Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, uh, yeah, so we, you know, we, we formed a chair. Um, and Built a chair. We built, yes, <laughs> so I'm sorry, I'll yes. stop now. <laughs> we built chair, and we formed chair. And we, you know, for us, it was, you know, we, we did. We initially, we initially started going down the road of traditional game development. Right. Where our, you know, the, f- the first... Three or four months of chair, we built a we built a first person shooter game demo that we're like because that's what you do you build a demo you right. go and you shop at the publishers you show it to everyone and the publishers like yes we'll give you X amount of millions of dollars to make that into an actual yeah. game that will come out in vertical three. slice yeah right? it's a vertical so, slice yeah. right so we made this awesome actually awesome we made this awesome vertical slice of what would a chair first person shooter be it was very innovative had some very innovative ideas and whatever and we built that vertical slice and we started shopping it to publishers but. Shopping, you know, shopping a game to publishers takes months, if not a year or more, right, to, to get a deal. And, right. and as we were doing that, we're like, it was about the time that Xbox 360 was coming out. And there was, like, just the, the twinkle in the eye of the gaming universe that there could be this digital marketplace. Right. Right? That not every game had to be a $60 box. Like they were integrating it into the console yes, itself. Exactly. Live arcade. Yep. And... And and we're like sitting there, and there was and at the formation of chair. There was seven of us, and we're like, let's not keep working on the vertical, vertical slice. It's done. Like, what are we gonna do? And we're like, what if we designed a game that we could build with seven people in like five or six months? Yeah. Could you even build a game in like six months? That's crazy, right? Like games take three years. And and uh, and so we. I said, yeah, let's let's do it. And so we're like, okay, everyone go home and think of cool games that we could build with seven people in six months. And tomorrow we're going to come back. And we all sat around the next day and we sat in a circle uh, for two days straight, actually. And we'd like, be like, okay, pitch a game, pitch a game. And we like, we had 30 seconds each to pitch. And <laughs> by the end of that, of it. by the end of that, we had like a list of like 200 game ideas, right? Yeah. And uh, And one of those, right, was I'm like, oh man, I remember... That drawing that we did. Remember that game we were talking about when we were 12? I'm like, I have that drawing. And I went and like dug through all my stuff and I'm like, I brought the drawing. I'm like, this, this is what we should make, you know? And and out of those 200 ideas, we whittled it down to um, five or six that we thought we could actually build and we actually wanted to work on. And at the end of that, we're like, no, Undertow, that's what we want to make. We, we love that idea. And so we built the game super fast. Within two weeks, we had the full kind of playable loop in. And we're like, oh my goodness, this game is super super fun and and again not to not not that they're even related in any way at all but you know i think some of the core tenets that mobas have popularized right of of uh in round progression you know a fast match with objective based yeah. kind of stuff was the core of what undertow was you know years before that right it's like you love up during the round it's not per, you know and like and so some of those elements uh were really fun and 
Just go ahead and take credit for inventing MOBAs, Donald. No. It's fine. I'm not saying that <laughs> at all. It's not a MOBA. But what it was is we found this hook that we thought was yeah. so fun. And we had this moment of clarity uh, where we – I'm not going to say who, and it doesn't really matter. But we were in London, and we had been meeting with different publishers. And it wasn't just some of the ones we were meeting in London. But we were we were on the eve of – we had two publishers that were like, we want to sign – deal with you guys to make this first person shooter hmm. and an undertow was about four months into development and we're like man this game is really really good and and it was like it was crazy we were like in this 800 year old hotel in this teeny little stairwell and all of us it was jeremy and myself and laura um who does all of our business development and pr and marketing and ryan our ceo at the at the time right and we were all sitting there and we're like do we really want to sign a deal to go make a first-person shooter and grow our team to 100 people yeah. and do what everyone else is doing? I'm like, or do we, or do we want to make this little teeny game? Like, what if that works? Like, we've funded this ourselves. What if we take no money from a publisher and we just do it ourselves? And we all are kind of looking at each other and we're like, oh, my gosh, are we going to do this? Are we going to turn away $10 million and, and viability for our company? And we're like, Oh my god! Yeah, we're we're doing it. Wow! And we that's said a huge risk. It, it's the crate is so dumb. Like I can't <laughs> believe you know. But but it just felt like this was. You this trusted was, your gut. It, it was our gut, and we were saying you know this, the future that we want is to be able to make the games we want to make, not be beholden to someone else's money, and and so we said no, and we self published uh, Undertow. I mean, had you and, talked to people like Greg Canessa and the Live Arcade team at that point to like, did, did, were you sort of no fully bought in on the vi- no? This no. is this is blind. No, we were just like, we think the future is here. Let's go for it. Wow! Right, and it was so crazy. And then we started talking to Microsoft, like, hey, we have this game. It's actually pretty fun. <laughs> and uh, and we put it out, and it was pretty successful. I mean, it. It won several Game of the Year awards, which is like, what? How can I, how can this win Game of the Year awards? And it, and I it, think we did it. I think at OXM we yes, might have given it, uh, it, it the, our Xbox Live Arcade Game of the Year. You did, yeah, you did. Well, so, well deserved. Yes, well, thank you. It was yes. great. And Congratulations, so, yeah. eight years later or whatever it is. No, and and it sold pretty well. Yeah, enough that we're like, we can make another game. And the other game we wanted to make, when we had our our team pitch, that we're like, that game would take more than six months was Shadow Complex, mm. right? And we're like, now we can make Shadow Complex. We know how to do it. We know how to ship these things. This is the future. Let's make Shadow Complex. And uh, and we can move on. But what ha- the result of Undertow, even beyond sales and for Modest and awards, which were great, was the industry took notice. Our, yes. fo- our phone started ringing off the hook. Every publisher in the industry was like, not, not like- wasn't now like, how can we publish your game? It was... How can we buy you? Well, it's like it's like the, the you you wanna you wanna best supporting actor Oscar, and suddenly you're getting all the scripts, right? right. That's basically the equivalent of what happened, right? Well, because because I think the publishers also saw the writing on the wall. Yeah. They're like, this there's a future here, and teams that are starting to figure out how to do some of this stuff because there's different there were and still are different hurdles to digital and understanding that marketplace, and and so um, you know we were kind of forging the, that path there. And and then when we started showing at GDC a few months later, 
we started showing, we had like a, an iPhone, one of the original iPhones, and it had a little video of some of our early Shadow Complex development on it. And that's where people were like, oh, like we have to buy you, we have to buy you. And that's right. where um, we chose to uh, become part of Epic. Um, and you, well, you were, you were loyal. They gave you, they, yeah. they helped you out. And they, I mean, that's awesome. But And they were the ones who also said, we'll let you make the games you want. Yeah, half these publishers probably wanted to just turn you into a run of the mill. Yeah, I'd be like, you could make awesome like Doritos games. It would be sweet. <laughs> so before I move on to Shadow Complex, because I know I'm already I'm already running out of time with you, but uh, <laughs> with one last thing on Undertow, it your te- I learned today that you and your brother drew this game out when you were 12 years old. So was there any point where you you go out to dinner with your brother after all the awards, everything's over with Undertow, and you, you sit there and turn you, you look at each other and go we just took that like 12 year old us just just made something amazing like is there ever that moment where you just sort of sit and reflect on this on the fact that the 12 year old versions of yourselves just laid the seed for the 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 the, cat- the catalyst for the success of your entire adult lives you know we don't do that enough honestly like i i think that's actually one of my core weaknesses as a human being is I, we don't celebrate enough. Like, like I think the truth is like inside, we're always so afraid that someone's going to discover that people are paying us to make games and then force us to go get, do something real. Like, you know, <laughs> that, that we're just so scared that we're like, we got to keep working. We got to keep working, we gotta keep working. And we don't celebrate enough. So we need to do more of that. But there was one moment um, that came post-Infinity Blade where we're always like, we'll know we're successful when we have enough extra money that we can like rent out a water park to have like, you know, a day for just everyone at chair. Yeah. And there came a moment where we're like, oh my gosh, we're going to do this. And we rent it, we rent it out a water park. How many, there can't be that many of you no, at no, chair, no. right? And then even that we're like, we're not going to invite anybody. It's just going to be like <laughs> just us and like our our spouses and our kids, right? And so it's like this huge. I love you guys are still twelve. Yeah, this yeah, is it's awesome. Like, it's like this huge water park, and there was like fifty people there, yes. right? And like we're like, and I do. I remember standing up on like this water slide with Jeremy, and we're looking out and like the sun setting, you know. And I'm just like, this is awesome. Like I can't believe all of us have built this thing you know and like so lucky that is literally the best video game so, success story i've ever heard so that that's probably the moment where i'm like oh my goodness like this is it this that's is awesome. awesome so yeah. shadow complex we mm-hmm. move on to that as you as you kindly segue straight into <laughs> for me just flawlessly uh did you guys just dig deep into the into the you said super metroids your favorite game ever yep. i mean is that where that came from wanting to were you just inspired by by your favorite game of all time that was definitely a huge part of it. But I mean, but it was also, you know, so this was probably 2007, yeah. right? That we started developing Shadow Complex, early 2007. And for me, looking at the landscape, you know, it, for us, it always starts with what game do we want to play? Like, what's a game that we want to play that, that whether it is or isn't being made, like, what game do we want to play? Yeah. And, and then second, it's what can we do that other people aren't doing? And as we looked at the market and the landscape, I'm like, how come no one's made a side-scroller in, like, 15 years? Let alone, how come no one's made, like, a nonlinear, exploration-based, Metroid-esque, Castlevania side-scroller since, basically, Symphony of the Night yeah. in 1997? Yeah. And even more so, like, since, like, to me, Super Metroid is the pinnacle of 2D game design. 
And then a year later, the PlayStation came out. And everyone shifted to 3D, yep. right? And to me, it was like, we'd look at ourselves and we'd be like, it's, it's almost like if Quake got made, Doom and Quake got made, and then it was like, yeah, yeah okay, those were cool games. Let's, let's go make something else. And like, no one made first-person shooters for 10 years. Right. Like, that's, to me, was the equivalent. I'm like, no one's doing this. This is a not just a viable genre, but it's like, one of the best game genres there are, and no one's making games. It's in it. it's it's the onion of game. There's just yes, so many layers the onion, to it, right? The non-linear onion. Yeah, like, that to me is just this encapsulation of brilliant design that no one was doing, and we're like, we've got to bring this back. It's our it's our life's work to like bring this back and to show how viable this can be in a modern market. And like, what if you brought that design and you fused it with some of the modern design sensibilities of physics and cool 3D graphics and you know, like and like a, like just cool systems that are available today? Wouldn't that be an amazing game? And and again, we were fortunate enough to be in a position where you know publishers. Pro- I, I think publishers wouldn't have touched that game with a ten foot pole. Like. It, is it a first-person shooter? Oh, it's not. <laughs> is it a third-person cover-based shooter? Nope. All right, well then, whatever. <laughs> Move on. But we had enough money from Undertow, and we had Epic saying, let's make something awesome. Just go make something awesome. And we're like, this is what we want to make. We believe there will if we build Because it, those guys it, were all self-made, super successful guys, so they, that's probably, yeah, that's probably they had, their, their whole spirit, right? Is right. They're not beholden to market trends. No, I mean, Epic is still the ultimate indie developer. Right. Yeah. What's What's truly indie is being able to do what you want and not having to take money from someone that's going to tell you what to make. Right. And Epic is the ultimate indie, and we got to become part of them. So we've been independent the whole time, and we can just do what feels right, and and that's awesome, right? So we got to go make we got to make Shadow Complex with no one telling us anything. We just got to make the game we wanted, and we. You, know, you would have been noted to death by a major publisher on that game, probably. Right. It if, would have. It would have never happened. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, but we were able to make it happen and we just believed if we build it, you know, people will like this. And our, our selfish hope was if we build it, people might get inspired by the genre and then they'll make games that we can play because I know where everything is in Shadow Complex, right? (laughs) You know, they can build an onion game for me. And I'm like, and now I've got Ori, I've got Axiom Verge, I've Mm -hmm. got Guacamelee, I've got, you know, Insanely Twisted Shadow Planet, right? Like there's all these games now. And so... I'm not saying it's because of Shadow Complex, but um, it's been pretty cool. So, uh, of course, back then, Summer of Arcade was a huge deal. Yes. Uh, did you guys lobby for Summer of Arcade, or did Microsoft just, just say, call you up and go, hey, guess what? I mean, it's, it's a blend of everything, right? I mean, we definitely looped Microsoft in early. We're like, guys, this is magical. It's this amazing thing we've got. And, and there was definitely um, some champions within Microsoft. Uh, Mark Coates was a huge champion there. And Ken Lobb, which I don't know if you know Ken. Huge gamer. Right. He's you know, obviously and, a longtime rare And guy. was at Nintendo during Super Metroid. Yes. Right? And so he immediately. His roots run deep. Yes. And he was immediately like, yes. Right? And he was a huge champion for us within Microsoft. And even to the point of, you know, with even with nine months left on Shadow Complex, he was like, Guys, there's some secrets. There's some secrets I know from the you know Super Metroid days. Let me tell you some of these formulas and things. And we're like, yes. And and he gave them to us, and they totally made Shadow Complex so much better. Wow, Ken, you know, I love you forever, right? And so, um, so that was a huge help. And then we've got a good, an amazing team that makes stuff happen. So is there Laura? A- Laura helped make Shadow or Summer Arcade happen, and that was that. And being in the Microsoft press conference at E3 and all this stuff was huge for us. Uh, so is there a point where you know 
that you're on to something with Shadow Complex? Do you do you just are you do you believe in it from the beginning, or, or is there because I you know I've heard I don't make games I never have, but I've spoken to so many developers over the years that sometimes you're you kind of don't know until like three months to go, it all just comes together, and then you're like, yes, we've got this. Or and but some so that's why I'm curious to ask you with Shadow Complex, it became such this. I mean, when there is a holy trinity of Xbox Live Arcade games, uh, and it's Limbo, it's Braid, and it's Shadow Complex. Those are the those are the three. So, is there a point in time when while you're making it where you just know that you've got something special, or or is it right at the end, or is it not till it comes out? Um, for us, I think I mean. We knew it was special um, pretty early on, like, it, and, and special to us, right? We knew that, like, this is a game that we desperately want to play, and and that's awesome to us. Like, so we knew at the end of the day we were making something that was super special to us. What I've never known on any game I've ever made is whether other people would agree. Like, I remember the day before Infinity Blade came out. Um, a journalist asked me, like, how many how many copies is Infinity Blade going to sell? And I'm like, uh, I looked around chair and I'm like, <laughs> 11, right? <laughs> like, that's, like, because, but I knew, like, I knew Infinity Blade. I'm like, this is a game that is awesome, like, and it's innovative, and it's totally different than what's out there, but I had no idea how the market would react. And it was the same with Shadow Complex. Like, we hoped, we knew we had something amazing, but... And we knew critics would probably like it because they played games like we did, but we had no idea if the market would respond. So you're here to promote Shadow Complex Remastered. It's on the screen behind yes. us. Yes. Uh, we're, I'm going to get back to it in a second, but uh, and I know we're on an Xbox podcast sort of talking more of your console history, but uh, you mentioned Infinity Blade, and I'm curious, what because uh, I've got about 10 minutes left with you, okay. what, how, what drew you guys to iOS, and how you end up becoming basically the killer app on the game side for iOS, for, for handheld, for mobile gaming. How's that happen? It happens when, you know, whatever. We, again, lucky, right? We, we, uh, you know, we made Shadow Complex. We loved it. By the end of it, we're like, we actually know how to make this kind of game. Let's go make Shadow Complex 2. And we started making Shadow Complex 2, and it's really... It was you famously had it spec'd out, right? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's... it's, it's uh, very spec'd out. We know exactly what it would be when um, we get a call from uh, Apple and Steve Jobs and and through Epic and stuff. He's like, hey, you know, uh, our hardware is pretty amazing and we think it can run Unreal Engine and we think we should, you know, there's something that could be shown here. And at the time we're like, hmm, let's pause Shadow Complex because this is a really good opportunity for us to, again, epic wide like really show what this technology can do and and we're like yeah and, and even then like already i was and many members of the team were starting to play mobile games yeah like we were starting to play you know sword and poker and uh you know lots of other games and so we're like we had some ideas like let's give it a try but of course we'll get back to shadow complex we're just you know doing this thing really quick and but if we're gonna do anything, we wanna do it great. And so we really wanted to try and make something that was innovative and thoughtful of the platform and what could really be a unique mobile experience but still have the tenets of good design and kind of console quality graphics. And it became this huge thing. I love how you're just you know? super modest because it, it, it just took off and you end up doing three of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I gotta figure, I mean, this. This this business this is life. I mean, it's 
Shadow Complex 2 hasn't come around because you're making too much money, right? I mean, you, can't, is it just, you just can't walk away from that on iOS. Is that fair to say? I mean, that's not... I mean, no one would, anybody would do the same thing in your shoes if that's the case. That's definitely a huge part of it. Um, that said, like, we love our babies, right? And, like, f- for us, like, it wasn't, it wasn't a foregone conclusion that we'd make Infinity Blade 2. Like, it wasn't like, yep, of course we're doing Infinity Blade 2. No, we were like, no, what's our next game? And yeah. we looked at all the options, and Shadow Complex 2 is definitely one of those options. And, but it was more, it, I'm not going to say the money didn't influence it heavily, but it was, it was also very design-influenced because we looked at Infinity Blade and we said, here we've kind of, like, within Shadow Complex, we were trying to reinvigorate a genre. With Infinity Blade, we had kind of stumbled into inventing a genre. Right. And from a design standpoint, we felt it was our duty to flesh out that genre and show what it was capable of because Infinity Blade was just a first step. And so we're like, we know we need one, maybe even two more games to really show our vision of what this genre could encapsulate. And, and we felt pushed by our design imperative yeah. to, 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 to do that. And we did. And by the end of it, by the end of Infinity Blade 3, we're like, yep, this is what we think the genre is. And now we don't need to do anything more with and it. And now you're renting out like every water park every weekend at that point, right? <laughs> just, I mean, one, just once a year. <laughs> just once a year. But we do it every year now. Yeah. Nice. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. uh, so now Shadow Complex coming back around in the form of Shadow Complex Remastered. You re-released it for free on PC. Well, it, it, had, it had, had it ever been on PC? It had never been and on that's PC. That's what I thought. Okay. Yep. It's free on PC. It was for was a limited time. Yeah. For, yeah on, so on the Epic Games launcher for a month, we gave it away for free. Yeah. So why after... Almost 10 years are we coming back around to revisit Shadow Complex? Because we love Shadow Complex. No, I mean, for us, it was we always want all of our games to be available to the widest audience possible. And um, we, we just, we, we, had, we saw an opportunity. You know, we were making, we're deeply, deeply involved in making Spy Jinx and, uh, you know, working with J.J. Abrams to yep. make that. And, you know, he had this little side project called Star Wars. And so we're like, you know, we need a side <laughs> project too. You know, we need like, you know, yeah. we need, you know. And so, no, joking aside, no, we just, we, there was finally an opportunity. There's many, many complicated factors leading into why we couldn't do this earlier. But um, the stars kind of aligned and, and a moment appeared where we had the time and the resources and when we actually could bring Shadow Comics up to the current code base of Spy Jinx and Infinity Blade and put in the original art and put in the original. So even we even snuck in a few of the features of Shadow Complex Two into the remaster, um, and because we wanted desperately to bring it to the PC audience, to the PlayStation audience, yeah. to the Xbox One audience, and it took us a while to get there, but we were never going to not do that. Um, and so we we've done it now, and we're so happy. We're so happy to make it available to a wider audience. We hope so that they like it. I I have to ask. You know, backwards compatibility has been a big thing. Uh, with remastered now, or does that rule out uh, the possibility of Shadow Complex being backwards compatible? It is actually backwards compatible right now. It is already. Yeah, okay, it is so already. I need to check the yep. list. No, it's fine. It was actually it was it was it was on date. It was one of the first ones. So I don't have to buy this. I can if I yep. if I already have it. It's it's working. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely, it's working. That said, if you want to play, uh, if you want to play Shadow Complex with super high-res texture maps and with contextual melee takedowns that we're going to be in Shadow Comics 2, um, you know, you should, you should buy it again. But, but yes, I mean, it, it is by design largely untouched because we felt like the onion layer was so 
well designed. Yeah. We weren't going to break the onion layer. Right. Well, so it's out now for 15 bucks on all three platforms, PS4, Xbox. No, so it's out right X, now. X, X, Xbox One. It's out today on Xbox X, One. And later for PS4. It'll be on PS4 and Steam in May. May. Okay. Yep. Make sure I've got that straight. And now, last question I have for you, Donald, is, okay. see, I, for me, when I heard about this, about Shadow Complex Remastered, I, my immediate thought is, why would they drum this back up unless they're trying to drum up interest for a proper Shadow Complex 2? So... That's right a good now, question. Right now, on <laughs> the world's number one Xbox podcast, announce Shadow Complex 2 as your, <laughs> as your next game. Go ahead. I'll turn the floor over to you. Spy Jinx is our next game. <laughs> but Spy Jinx, you know, is we've been working on Spy Jinx for almost a year and a half. And so that game will come out sooner rather yep. than later. Um, and we, you know, I would, I would love, love nothing more than to make a Shadow Complex 2. Um, and I'm not going to... I would never hold Shadow Complex 2 hostage by saying, if you want Shadow Complex 2, show us. Right. You know, go show us you want it by supporting it. Um, but, I mean, that's partly But it true. doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt, right? <laughs> it doesn't hurt because I really, really want to make that game. Um, and we have some amazing ideas for it. And we will someday absolutely make a Shadow Complex 2. It's just how soon. That's good enough for me. So, Donald Mustard, co-founder of Chair, Chair Entertainment, a uh, very independent subsidy of Epic Games. Your partner's there. Uh, thank you so much for coming in. Oh, I haven't talked to you in forever. I know. It's great to go through, to just d- go back, because your, your history... <laughs> it's crazy, actually. Your history yeah, is so Xbox-centric. It you know, is, it, very it, much. Has, it is kind of by accident. Like, it almost... I mean, I don't even know why. I, I know you got to go. I don't even know why Advent Rising was never, wasn't on PS2, but you've had an Xbox-centric history. I'm glad you could come in here on our Xbox show yes. and, uh, and talk through everything. So Shadow Complex Remastered, out now. Uh, it's on Xbox One first yes. for 15 bucks. But also, if you're an old geezer like me and you've got Shadow Complex already in your 360 library, yep. it's playable via backwards compatibility. Donald Mustard, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, guys. I'm with Jamie Griesmer. He is the co-founder of Highwire Games, makers of Golem for PlayStation VR. But let's go back in time, Jamie. Let's dial it. Let's go way back, hop yeah. in the DeLorean, get up to 88. Uh, you, of course, came onto the scene. Uh, you worked your way into Bungie. Yeah. So let, let's skip right to Halo. You were one of the designers on the original Halo. Yeah, yeah. It was actually the first dedicated designer on Halo. Jason, the project lead, is also obviously a designer. Jason Jones. Jason, you're just, you, you know, you, uh, you, you know, got the first name basis yeah, going on. Yeah. Um, he's obviously a designer, and obviously Halo was his baby. So um, I was able to learn and kind of take on way more than a junior designer really should have on such a huge project. <laughs> Tell me that story of how uh, you told me when off off air, but it's a kind of an interesting story of how you even came to end up working at Bungie. Oh yeah, so uh, you know a lot of people, um, especially like aspiring game designers, will come to me and say, "How did you get into the industry? Like, like I'm looking to to make it," and I'm like, "Well, I got in through blackmail and <laughs> deception, so that's not going to work." This is a good for story. You. Yeah. So um, basically, I was in college and uh, I was getting a physics degree, which is a total different direction my life could have taken. But I was also running a fan website for Myth, which is the yeah. game that Bungie did before. Yeah, they their did strategy Halo. game. Yeah. 
huge Myth fan, played a lot of it uh, in college, and then I happened to send Marty O'Donnell uh, an email. Um, he was doing music for, he had done the music for Myth, um, but he wasn't yet part of Bungie. He was right. still running his own thing. And I said, I'm a huge fan. I especially love your music. Like, can I do an interview? So um, he said yes, because he's Marty and he loves to do interviews and, and talk to people, especially people that start off with how much they love his music. And so uh, I sent him a bunch of questions, and it was like an email exchange. And the last question was, so, like, how's the music coming for Myth 2? Like, is it, like, are you going to use the same themes? And um, he wrote me back, like, oh, yeah, I just started the music, and um, it's going really well. We're going to record pretty soon. And I'm like, hey, Marty, they haven't announced Myth 2 yet, so... <laughs> You probably don't want me to announce it for them. <laughs> what can we do? What, what, what can Look you do for you, me? You yeah. yeah, and um, yeah, I, I mean, I didn't intend to strong arm him, <laughs> but once I had that information, I had to leverage it somehow. I mean, what would you? No, don't ask. Don't, don't answer, answer that. that. Uh, so um, I kind of parlayed that into a visit to his studio, and that. Got me in the door. Yeah, you said Bungie. you wanted to come visit Bungie. Yeah, right? yeah. So he walked me around and he introduced me to you know all these people, and I was just a total fan at the time. Well, it's so, coincident you lived at you were in Chicago yeah, at the time too, yeah, right? Yeah, it was great. So I just you know took the L downtown, and um, that's how I met Jason the first time, and I met uh, Doug Zartman, who did like the voice of some of the marathon characters I loved, and then all he he also introduced me to Max Hoberman, who was their community manager and sort of web master at the time. Yeah. And through that connection, I eventually got a job kind of as intern and worked on Myth 2 and then um, wouldn't give my key back. So they had to keep giving me more jobs and more responsibility. Unbelievable. Yeah. And that's so, yeah, don't, don't blackmail people. Yeah, it's, well, that's or do. I think the lesson or, is do. Okay, you said that, not me. <laughs> I'm going to move on. Uh, no, you're, you're sort of famously credited with uh, inventing Halo's sort of legendary 30 seconds of fun. I think labeling it, maybe. Labeling it. Labeling it? it Yeah, I mean, obviously the whole team is working on it, and and Bungie had a lot of design values that that led to how it felt, but I I have a knack for branding (laughs) gameplay, I guess. Well, where did it come from? Where did 30 seconds of fun come from, from the team? Yeah, well, I think um, uh, my design value especially is you start with the player... You work outward through the controls and into kind of that core game loop, and then you build the rest of the game, the story, and the structure around it. And so the 30 seconds is that infinitely repeatable chunk of gameplay that is just always fun, and it's deep and kind of um, unpredictable in a way. And for Halo, that 30 seconds is like one encounter. So it's sneaking up on a bunch of enemies, figuring out who you're going to attack first, Hucking the grenade at the group while you then switch and target the lead or whatever, and then mopping up the rest of the grunts with melee attacks. It's just like that really quick cycle. And then I think people have misinterpreted that as you just do the exact same thirty seconds over and over and over and over and over and over. That's that's not that's not the intention. What you do is then you take that thirty seconds and you put it in a different mission. And now there's no elite. There's five jackals, and you know you mix it mix it up yeah. within that structure. But what, you have to have that. The basic thirty seconds first. Uh, did now did that translate to multiplayer on purpose or on accident? 
Because I know Halo multiplayer in the original kind of came together late, right? Um, in a way, it came together late. In a way, it's where we started. So um, before you have cutscenes and AI and a lot of giant kind of well-constructed environments, you have multiplayer, which simulates a lot of those things. Like other players are your enemy AI. And um, if you can find something that's fun in multiplayer, then you can try to replicate that fun in single player. So we were playing multiplayer Halo long before any of the single player content was ready. Interesting. The transition to Xbox and doing it sort of um, on a LAN, on a console, that was the thing that came together very, very late. Uh, so, yeah, you because uh, no one had really done it before, had made it fun on a gamepad. You know, GoldenEye worked, uh, yeah. sort of single thumbstick, but yeah, you, what's the process like for t- trying to take that first-person shooter and make it a really fun experience on a gamepad, which had never been done before? Yeah, I mean, I think... Step one is um, arrogance, to just think that you can do something that hasn't been done before. Um, and then uh, step two is kind of necessity. So we were a PC and Mac game and then sold the whole company to Microsoft specifically so we could go work on the Xbox. And so we, we knew we had to solve that challenge. Yeah. And Halo was not the first game to do movement on the left thumbstick and aiming on the right thumbstick. Um, I think... The reason why people give us credit for that is Halo was the first game to do it with such precision and kind of um, uh, kind of depth of, of of the skill ceiling that you could play a sophisticated shooter with it and that you could engage in a multiplayer game that wasn't just kind of random and sloppy. Were you were you a Duke guy or a controller S guy? Did you what, what did you think when those Duke controllers? Showed? Yeah, you know I have um, sort of tiny hands, so um, I I didn't realize how um, kind of giant the Duke was until I played with the S, which was originally just the Japanese right. Xbox controller, and. I played with one of those, and some of the other guys in the studio did, and said, "Hey, can we get more of these? Like, can we get a, like a lot more of these? <laughs> um, just keep keep bringing them." And um, I think that was the, the response kind of across Microsoft, and they went, "Hmm, maybe we should release these in other territories." Uh, where did the two weapons system come from? And I, that that was another thing that had not, you know usually back even go back to Doom, and it was. Seven, eight weapons, mm-hmm. but a two-weapon system in Halo. Yeah, I think part of creativity and innovation is reacting to um, limitations and restrictions that are placed on you. So, uh, on a keyboard, you have, you know, whatever, 120 buttons. Yeah, and so you just kind of spew as many as you need. It's very easy to go rocket launcher, machine gun, shotgun, right? On a controller, you have a lot fewer buttons to map to things and we already knew we wanted to have kind of this direct actions for throwing grenades and melee attacks so that couldn't be a, a swap and so we really only had one button and um, so if you get more than two weapons it's not instantly predictable what's going to happen when you hit that button and so a lot of it was just reacting to that Interesting. and then Utilizing that in the game mechanics and making picking up different weapons of something that's heavily featured in the game, 
Um, there's also memory requirements and things. Like, if you're going to instantly switch to a weapon, it's got to be in memory. You can't hit the button and then wait for it to load, <laughs> and then it shows up. And, and Hold on, I'm getting inside of my backpack. Just yeah, hang on yeah, a second. Yeah, and you don't want to bring up, like, empty hands, and then the gun pops in or something. So, um, we, you know, in order to have good-looking guns, we kind of had to limit the number that we knew you were going to be able to have access to. Interesting. How about another another Halo staple that, mm-hmm. that it ended up influencing first-person shooters for years? In fact, to this day, the uh, lack of health packs, for the, for the most part, the, yeah. the recharging shield system. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was um, part of a game called Tribes. There was one character yeah, class tribes. that had one sort of ability that you could get that would do that um, and so sort of uh, as a designer you're constantly on the search for new game mechanics and different ways to apply them so we found that um, we were running into this problem where we would start you in a mission with a certain amount of health and then you'd get to the end which is like supposed to be the hardest encounter and it's impossible to balance because right. some people get there and they haven't taken any damage. Some people get there and they've only got 10% of their health left. You can't balance one encounter for both of those guys. And so um, recharging health became kind of um, a way that we could really push on the player and allow them to experiment and be crazy and try different things, but, but never get themselves in a situation where they were kind of um, back against the wall and had no, no more options. Right. So the checkpoint system is a big part of that, too. So we, we were not... Um, games before Halo very often had kind of um, manual saves. So or you had to start the whole mission over. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And if you messed, messed up and you manually saved at 10% health it could be literally impossible for you to get past the next section of the game. And so when we were automatically checkpointing you, that situation would come up quite a bit, which is why we had to have a way to kind of get you to some minimum health level. Uh, are there any good Halo 1 behind-the-scenes stories that, that have never been aired? Oh, that, that man, now that ones... you're here, you could just, you know, yeah. the statute of limitations is over. The ones that haven't been aired are probably haven't been aired for a reason. <laughs> Um, I mean, I think um, one thing that that people you know don't realize is how hot like the whole game came in. Yeah. So we um, got bought by Microsoft. We all moved out to Seattle, and we had to rewrite huge portions of the engine we had to rewrite huge portions of the story we had to redo tons and tons of missions and so it came together so fast that things that you think of are like as inseparable from halo like we could not have halo without a shotgun right there was a meeting where we said are we gonna have the sniper rifle or the shotgun because we can't have both huh and like serious meetings like, wow. this wasn't like a um, you know, some producer panicked and like tried to do something crazy. This was like, no, seriously, like we can't do both. And we decided, well, we have missions that use the sniper rifle, so we have to have the sniper rifle. So I guess we're cutting the shotgun. <laughs> we walked out of the meeting thinking we were cutting the shotgun from wow. Halo. I mean, uh, and then of course, a group of us maybe came in on, on the weekend and <laughs> jammed it in there, sort of. Uh, as a like a skunk works project but yeah, um, yeah the, the the line was so close and so when we shipped the game 
75% of the team thought, well, this is a disaster. Like, this is going nowhere. Like, we're going to get destroyed as soon as the reviews come out. And I guess this was a fun experiment, but, you know, what are we? What? What? We're, let's start working on the new IP. Wow! <laughs> yeah. You did cut the flamethrower, though. That yes. did. That did hit the cutting. Yeah, uh, yeah. The that one was that one was cut much earlier, just for technical reasons. Like we just couldn't get it to work. Yeah. Well, but, um, but yeah. I mean, entire maps that people like couldn't imagine Halo multiplayer without came in last second because of some crazy effort by an environment artist. Like it was, it was a close thing. So if you're if you're saying most of you just were expecting the worst, yeah. When the game takes off, was there a, was there a moment for you where you just like where it all where it just hit you? Yeah. Well, I mean, my moment came way before we launched, where I was like driving through um, the second level of Halo, which is called Halo because that's you clear. land on it, yeah. Um, uh, and I'm like. Driving over these like this terrain, and this banshee flies by, and my marines like shooting at it, and then I take a jump, and I landed on some grunts, and my marine goes woo, and I went, oh, we're gonna sell a billion of these. Like this is this is the best. So I, I was one of the ones that was like, no guys, like it's really gonna be great because I I had to play a lot. Yeah, I was playing twelve hours a day to tune and balance, and I did a lot of the kind of weapon and character uh, tweaking toward the end. So I was playing more than anybody else, and some of these guys are just like in Max or working on textures or something and they're not getting to play the game and so they they didn't see it come together right at the end. So uh, I Jason Jones got the chance to sit down with him a few years ago. Uh-huh. He doesn't he doesn't like to talk to us media folks. He's a private guy. He yeah. is. Uh, but he told I got him to tell me the story about the three shot death machine pistol from Halo One. How he sort of sort of snuck it in there. What what was what is your memory of, oh. of how all that went down? Oh, you just you gotta go there, huh? Yeah, I'm going there. That's all what right. this, that's what we're here for. Okay. Well, you know, it's distant <laughs> enough and it worked out okay, so I'm not as sensitive about it anymore. But so I was um working on multiplayer weapon balance at the same time as single player, because we try to keep the weapons the same. You don't want them to behave drastically differently. It's right. kind of confusing. Players will be like, huh? Yeah. Well, and also we didn't really have time to do <laughs> two sets of tuning, right? So I had things like basically where I thought they were good and we sort of locked everything down and then made a couple more tweaks because you always do and I was like alright I feel good about shipping like I think this is going to work it's working well on play tests and then um, and then we hit gold master and everybody went home and then uh, I came in a couple of days later after sleeping probably for 48 hours straight and I'm playing and I'm like wait a second like this, this pistol is, is, is a hand cannon now. Like, this is not what went wrong. And I checked all the, the data and the tags and everything, and I'm like, this hasn't changed at all. Like, um, you know, it's so close to ship, like, nobody would, like, touch anything right. or tweak anything. And especially the way we built the game, it would take all of the data sort of kind of um, uncompressed, and it would... Um, crush it down into these cache files and uh, we were cache locked like we could not change anything that was going to change that cache file because that's what we were shipping well I found out that Jason had um, gone into the code not not the data and made it so anytime you look up the damage for this this one weapon in this specific situation in multiplayer yeah just double it <laughs> And then, so, it, and then it, he trolled you guys with it 
in in de- in uh, multiplayer match. Oh, right? I wouldn't put it past him. Yeah, <clears throat> and it was like. I was, I mean, I was exhausted, So I was, but I was also just, like, shocked because we had spent so long and done so many playtests. Um, and if anybody else in the company had done it, like, it would have been on. But, you know, it's Jason. You kind of have to go with his instincts. I mean, he's got you this far, right? Um, but it took what was basically, like, supposed to be this puny sidearm yeah. and turned it into just a railgun, a death machine, like, <laughs> the only weapon worth using in the game. Um and so, but people, you know, loved it. And they, that became a big part of, I think, why Halo was successful. It also made the game a little kind of narrower than we ultimately wanted. Um, so f- we knew in Halo 2 we couldn't just, like, undo the change, right? Although I pitched that, and they were like, no, 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 that's not going to work. <laughs> um, so the main, the main thing with Halo 2 was like, okay, well, let's get the affordance. Let's get the looks to match the power. Because having this, like one-handed kind of pistol be the best gun in the game is, like, not going to work. So we we literally saved the pistol as the battle rifle and then saved the assault rifle as the SMG and then redid the art. Interesting. Yeah, to to kind of preserve the functionality but match them up a little bit better with the size <laughs> of a gun. That's awesome. Uh, so you left, you were there up, uh, until during or after Halo Three? Oh yeah, I was there. I yeah, I was yeah. there for Halo Three. Uh, so what's what's your favorite of the Halos? Do you have a, Do you have a favorite? Can you pick a favorite mm. child? Yes, I think that um, Halo One was probably my favorite to work on. It was just so exciting, and it was really my first big game I got to work on, and I was able to do so much because. Back then, you know, one guy could do 40% of the missions and balance the weapons and work on the characters and, you know, all the stuff, which, uh, you know, as the team gets bigger and responsibilities get narrower, like, I was never able to hit that much of the project yeah. as, as I did. So, personally, I think Halo 1 was kind of a more exciting project. Uh, I feel like Halo 3 is the best kind of representation of all that Halo can be. Um, just, you know, the missions are the broadest, and we got to do some of the kind of crazy stuff like the Scarab. Um, and the weapon set is very comprehensive. We weren't cutting weapons right at the very end. Uh, so, I, you know, if I'm going to just sit down and play one, it's going to be Halo 3, especially because, you know, Halo 1, the movement's so slow, and the shields are so slow. Like, it just it feels kind of uh, like a step less powerful than Halo 3. So if I'm going to play one, it's going to be Halo 3. But Halo 1's, you know, it's hard to hard to go back. Solid choice. Yeah. Uh, you have a gaming-aged son. Yeah. Uh, does does he play Halo and get to brag to all his friends? My dad made that. No, he's still, he's just in kindergarten. And I thought you, okay, I, I'm sorry. I thought yeah. you had an older one. Um, some of the other guys at Highwire have older kids yeah. that play. Months, no, my son does love playing games. He yeah. actually plays our current game. Um, we'll get to that. Yeah, but his but he's not he's not ready for he's not right. ready for Halo. He likes Fair to enough. watch. Uh, so I I'm ready to game. That's yeah, <laughs> he um, he likes to watch me play for sure. Nice. Uh, so then you uh, you end and but su- you leave Bungie and you go to Sucker Punch. You're yeah. you're move from one high profile first party studio to another. Yeah. Uh, infamous. Yeah. How, what's what's the thanks for glossing over that leave. I like that. Well, uh, well we don't have to go there. Um, Yes, I. Uh, There's this funny moment where I'd only been at Sucker Punch for maybe two months, and they have this big meeting offsite. 
where they gather the whole team together, yeah. um, kind of um, by discipline, and the founders get up there, and they're like serious, but they don't look sad, you know, because that meeting could be bad, right? Right. And they're like, okay, does anybody have any speculation for what this meeting's about? I'm like, we're getting bought by Sony? Because <laughs> I've been through that before, process yeah. before, yeah. So we're just going to sell Highwire to Nintendo, and then I'll, <laughs> I'll complete my triumvirate. Yeah. Get that patch on your exactly. Cub Scout, Cub yeah. Scout vest. So uh, what's, is, is, uh, how's the perspective change working, or is it just the same? You're, you're just making a game for a platform. Do you, does it feel any different than working on a high-profile game for one first party versus another? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, for me, it was a great challenge because it took me out of kind of my element and my familiarity and said, hey, can you recreate any part of what you had at Bungie? Like, like, can you, can you come up with good combat? Can you build good AI characters? Like, how much of that, like, is it in you and how much of that is kind of part of your surrounding team and i don't want to discount how awesome sucker punch is too but you know i i you get a better feel for what you're bringing to the table when you are at multiple tables right um so that was a lot of fun i think um the culture at sucker punch is uh less based in multiplayer trash talk so uh, I had to tone down a lot of the rhetoric. Oh, because you guys, well, yeah, you guys were a bunch of young, young guns when oh. you were coming up at Bungie, right? Yeah. So you just talk crap to each and other. And we would all play the time. multiplayer two hours a day <laughs> against the same people over and over. You know, yeah. inevitably that's going to spill over into a design discussion. <laughs> but uh, yeah, at Sucker Punch, you know, they're much more kind of calm and relaxed. And so I would say something bombastic about this sucks, and then everybody would go, "Oh my gosh, he thinks it sucks," and I'd be like, "Oh, no." I- it, no, it's fine. We just have to fix it. It's like I didn't. I didn't mean it sucks. Sorry. You're like a human internet commenter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's just you know, it's just a different t- tone for sure. Um, but you know, at that time, I um, starting to build a family, and um, Sucker Punch is very family friendly. So it was it was a good fit, and I, I enjoyed my time there quite a bit. So you're there for a little while, but then it's it's you move on, and you decide you're going to buddy up with uh, Marty O'Donnell. Yeah. Who, of course, your initial sort of liaison into the games industry. Yeah, the circle is complete. And um, uh, Jared Noftley, who... Noftel, yeah. Noftel, sorry, yeah. from, uh, who'd, who'd been the COO at Airtight, yeah. who'd mm-hmm. made a few interesting games, yeah. uh, Dark Void and, yeah. and uh, uh, Quantum Conundrum. Uh-huh. So, and you guys decide, okay, let's, let's get out of this whole AAA thing. What now? And you choose VR. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, that's, that's a risk, right? I mean, because we, we still don't know. Yeah, we still. I mean, I guess by the time this airs, one or two of them will be out. Uh, PlayStation VR is out yeah. in October. Yeah, it's happening. But yeah. yeah, like, why? You know, why? Why uh, that? Is it? Is you want to take on the challenge? Is it just you just see that as the future? I'm curious. Uh, why the vet- veterans such as yourselves would would venture back out into the wild west? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think because uh, because the wild west got civilized, and I kind of miss. I kind of miss the the ruggedness and kind of danger to yeah. continue your metaphor there. I like it. So, I mean, I think there was, you know, there's a, there's an opportunity for me to go into a AAA studio, kind of do what I've always done. And yeah, your phone's probably ringing off the hook at that. Yeah, point, right? well, you know, not off the hook, thank you. But uh, um, I could have I could have probably ginned something up. Yeah. Um, 
But there's a certain sense of like I rode that roller coaster and it was fantastic. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I, look, let's be honest. No game I'm ever going to work with or on is going to be as successful as Halo. So the pressure's off. Now I can just kind of pursue whatever is interesting. And and um, when Marty and I both were kind of in between things at the same time, I was just like, look, let's just let's just roll the dice. Like let's see what happens. Um, and we started talking, and we had a lot of kind of similar ideas about where things might go, um, and a lot of. You know the the AAA industry has changed so much when we got since when we, when we got started. When I joined the Halo team, it was fifteen guys. Yeah. And when I left, it was five hundred guys. Yep. And gals. And now, now it's, it's like a thousand. Yeah. I mean, it's distributed across two continents. This is it's enormous. So, um, I I I just I fit better on a team where. Um, we're tackling kind of new weird problems that have never happened before rather than just implementing like known solutions and just kind of iterating. Um, I, I create problems on that team because I'm like, <laughs> well, I know that worked last time we did it, but let's try something completely new, you know, just because I'm bored basically. <laughs> you so, want to reinvent the wheel. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so I needed, I, I need to, I need new kind of, um, uh, difficulties to to overcome and marty's the same way i mean for an old guy he is he's got a very young outlook like he's always trying new technology and new techniques and learning new tools and i have a huge amount of respect for 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 his ability to do that and kind of how it's steered his career and so he's like yeah you realize sound of vr is going to be totally different right i'm like no i didn't (laughs) let's work together (laughs) and then jared came about because you know, Marty and I at the table have a certain kind of skill set and talents, and none of them are technical or kind of engineering related, and we need somebody to slide on that gap. Jerris, I, I hadn't worked with him at the time, but I, I'd known him and known him was like a stand-up guy that I could, I could trust. So I'm talking to Jamie Griesmer. He's uh, the co-founder, one of the three co-founders of High Wire Games, working on Golem for PlayStation VR. And that's my next question is, you've got... You know, you've, you've got uh, Oculus out there. They've mm-hmm. been very high profile for a mm-hmm. while. Uh, Valve, of course, no, nobody to be ignored. Yeah. Working with HTC on the Vive, doing yeah, yeah. their thing. And then Sony with Morpheus, now PlayStation VR. Yeah. What made you uh, go in with Sony as opposed to one of the other two? Sure, uh, man. Um, all of the headsets have, like, kind of advantages and things that they're great at. Um, and also, you know, they share limitations, and um, a lot of it had to do with the people. So when I was at Sucker Punch, I got to know the executives over at Sony very well, mm-hmm. um, and they get it. Like they are gamers, and they make decisions that are based on what's good for the game, all the way, all the way up to the top. And so um, when we were pitching Golem, I mean, it's it's kind of a different take. You know, there's not there's not like a baseline for VR yet, but even even then, we're sort of an outlier and doing something in a different direction. And the the Sony guys got it right away. They got what what we were trying to do, even from an early prototype, and and got behind it really early. And it, so it just it was such a good fit. We kind of had to because yeah, you were telling me. I mean, there's a story on IGN that we did after interviewing you guys at your studio. It, it's Golem is a PlayStation VR exclusive title, but there are points in the game where uh, in be, that you will be 
having people actually take the helmet off mm-hmm. and play on a television. Yeah, well, what we what we found is that um, even the most hardcore gamer who's like into tech and gadgets and gets all of it, uh, the f- their first VR experience, um, they're not going to be as comfortable as they will in their second and third and fourth. It's something that you acclimate to. Yeah. Uh, and there's very little correlation between kind of how much you play even action games like a first-person shooter and how quickly you adapt to VR. So um, I've had some people who've been gamers their whole lives and you know play Halo competitively, and VR really kind of sets them off, and they have to be really careful. And then you know I, I know other people who aren't interested in video games at all they play all the way through some of our earlier prototypes and no problem. So we've, what we've found is we need to put you in the headset and then take you out of the headset, but let you keep playing the game. Yeah. So there's something to do outside <clears throat> of the headset. Put you back in the headset for a little longer this time and um, sort of over... It's not, you know, it's not like over days or anything, but it's like gradually acclimate you to, to, to being in VR. So uh, the game, for if you haven't been following our, our coverage of Golem all month long, it is, it is uh, for me, it's one of the most promising real games I've mm-hmm. seen in VR yet because a lot of what we've been seeing in VR so far uh, have been a lot, of, a lot of tech demos, a lot of mini games. Mm-hmm. If you guys are crafting a real game, give me the, well, not give me, give the audience <laughs> the sort of Cliff's Notes version on, on exactly what Golem is. Sure, so... Um, in Golem, you play as this uh, adventurous, sort of um, impetuous kid who is off exploring this um, abandoned city near her village when she gets injured, like seriously injured. And so uh, you wake up, and you're in your bed, and, and you can't walk anymore. Um, and so while she's confined to her room, um, she develops this ability to reach out and take over these creatures called golems. And the first thing she does is she kind of like sees through the eyes of her doll. And then she learns <laughs> she can make the doll like stand up and walk around on the floor of her room and explore her house. But eventually she Which gets, is you in VR. You are in the doll. You're Yeah, doing. yeah, absolutely. And we're kind of using her experience to as an analog to yours. So as she grows in sort of familiarity with controlling golems, you do the same thing with VR. And so, yeah, when you put on the headset, that's when you take over a golem and you're seeing out of the golem's eyes and you're using the golem's like hand. Um, and eventually she gains the ability to, to uh, control these large, you know, 20-foot-tall stone giants with equally massive swords. So even though the game, so the game does not use the DualShock 4. Yeah, I mean, the best, the best way to play right now in VR is to... Um, get a sense of like hand presence, they call it. So we have your eyes and we have your ears, and that's all going toward the player, right? Right. But we need for the player to be able to reach back into the world and manipulate things. And we found that the move is a pretty good tool for that. Nice. So, and then the the movement too is interesting. You don't have thumbsticks because you've decided to use the move. Mm-hmm. So you actually have come up with a system where, uh, which I've tried and it's perfectly natural. Yeah. It's a it, you're just using the the head tracking that the thing art that the VR unit already does yeah. to move yourself. Yeah. So we did almost a year of prototyping. We've been working in VR for for a while, um, and 
one of the first things we tried, obviously, was just like, okay, we'll just do first-person shooter controls, um, like, in VR. Yeah. And what we found two things would happen. One, like, people would have a bad reaction and get sick right away. Because, you know, you're moving around very quickly and you're changing direction very quickly. And anytime you are moving your your view around without matching what the head tracking is doing, you're in a, that's, that's definitely a nausea trigger. So then the other thing we found was people would just sit there like this, like they're just playing a first-person shooter with a yeah. big screen in front of them. They, right. And they weren't in the experience. They weren't looking around the world and they weren't kind of like be- like believing it kind of um, on, a, on a basic level. Uh, so we decided pretty early, like, uh, yeah, thumbsticks are just, there's too much baggage. They're bringing too much baggage with them. And so we were looking for other ways that you could control your character. And we went all the way back to, well, okay, if I'm just walking around in a space, how do I do it? Well, I lean forward a little bit, and that moves my center of gravity forward, and I take a step, right? And I just keep leaning forward and keep taking steps, and that's how you move in real life. Right. So in Golem, if you want to have your character walk forward, you just lean slightly forward in your chair and your character fairly naturally just starts stepping and that works in any direction you can back up you can stop um and it's so sensitive like we know where your head is to down to the millimeter because that's how vr works in the right. first place and so you don't have to you know you're not on a rowing <laughs> machine or something it's just like if you watch somebody that's been playing for a while it's like you can barely even tell that they're moving nice last couple questions i have for you first sure. of all uh you know, you you've gone from Looks like well, the the fifteen person Halo team swelling to five hundred. Yeah. Now you're back to a nine person team <sighs> yeah. at Highwire. Uh, do you ever see yourself working on a big team again, or do you is is the small you know insular tight team the way forward for you? I love working on a small team. <laughs> I, I mean, that's how I came up, and um, that's kind of where I'm at my most happy. Um, and fortunately. The way the industry is going, you don't have to be on a huge team to make an impact anymore. Yeah. So we're using the Unreal Engine, which means you know that's at least 50 people that would be building an engine in a traditional studio that we just let Epic, you know, kind of pay and manage because they're really great right. at it. We just use the end product, um, and then with the amount of outsourcing and kind of specialty contractors that that you have access to, and especially in a hub city like Seattle, you don't have to have a concept artist because you just go work with the freelance concept artist that's amazing, and if you don't have anything for him to do, you're not paying him in the meantime. So right. you can keep the team very small, but but leverage all those connections and, and all those resources to, to make a more impressive game. And then uh, last question I have for you, Jamie, is... You know, you like working on a small team, but what about VR? Is Golem a one-off project for you guys? And then maybe you're going to go back to making, a, you know, like a, a first-person thing, a shooter, or like a Firewatch type thing, or sure. a Witness type thing, or or is Highwire a VR studio and you guys are all in on VR? Yeah, I mean, Highwire is a games company, first and foremost. Um, we want to make these interactive experiences that are kind of skill-based and have amount of investment and progression. You can have a, like, we're, we're a games company. That said, it'd be pretty hard to stop working in VR now. Now when I play a... I, call, I, I found myself calling them a 2D game. It's like a fully rendered 3D shooter, right? but it's on a TV, so it, you know, it feels flat now. Like It feels kind of... Um, 
distant, like in a window. It's 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 just a postcard. It's not being there like VR is. So I'm I'm one of the reasons why I'm so out there and talking about VR is because I want it to happen so bad so we can continue making content for VR because it's it's really it's, it's it's a whole other level. Awesome. Well, the game is Golem. The man is Jamie Grease from the studios, High Wire Games. We're covering Golem all month long as part of IGN First. Be sure to check out our coverage if you haven't been keeping up with it already. Uh, we're going to look for the game at some point. We don't, we don't when it's done. Yep. To use the old yep. to use the old adage, you guys haven't committed to a date just yet, but it is a story-based full full game yeah. made for VR, not a mini game collection and not a tech demo. Yeah. Real thing. Yeah, it's early right now, but we're excited to kind of keep sharing things as they get to the level where we can put them out there, and um, we're really excited to have people play it. Great. Jamie, thank you so much, and for much more on Golem, keep it tuned right here to IGN. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.